Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Well, uh, welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones, director of the Shorenstein Center, and it is my great pleasure and uh, honor to, to welcome a very distinguished journalist. Um, Laurie Hayes has begun her journalism career at the Wall Street Journal as a reporter, uh, worked on many important projects, traveled all over the world, was in uh, Russia. Um, she has, you know, had a very distinguished career. She is now just recently been promoted to senior executive editor at Bloomberg News, where she oversees 1,300 beat reporters covering government, economics, finance, markets, and companies. <coughs> yeah, but what else? That's the... <laughs> that about uh, covers it, I think. Uh, in other words, she has one of the very biggest jobs in journalism. Bloomberg News um, the, is, a, is the only news organization I know right now that is in a kind of... Uh, wonderfully robust expansion and visionary stage. Laurie was just telling me before we came in here about, you know, hiring some visionary new people to create new things, especially in a digital sense. It's very exciting to have a Bloomberg uh, in the world right now because the news business is something that is, of course, changing and in many respects is dwindling, but not at Bloomberg. So uh, it's not only a big job, but it's a big job at a very, very important company. Lori, Thank you, welcome. Alex. I appreciate that. Um, and thank you all for being here today. I wish I could um, tell you that at the end of this talk, we're all going to have figured out how to solve um, the budget crisis in Washington and even more dangerously, but the debt ceiling crisis. Um, I've woven little bits of that into my remarks, but uh, I don't have a solution, and maybe we should brainstorm at the end of this <laughs> on what stories you think that we should be writing um, to help people have clearer thinking about Washington. I wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit about Bangladesh and some of the other stories that we've done um, that I think have provided uh, a really nice window on why we do what we do in financial journalism. I, I, I think financial journalism is a little daunting for some people, a little, sometimes we don't write it well enough um, for people to understand what we're saying, and we have to work harder on that, but I just wanted to take the opportunity to tell you all why I think um, it's so important. So earlier this year, we, 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 after the um, fires in the Bangladesh factories, um, we wrote some stories that we thought would resonate with people, um, our readers. And we asked the question, how much is life worth? In Bangladesh, it's worth about 90 cents. And you may be surprised uh, that I would say that, but let me explain how we arrived at that figure and why it's so important. Many of us went into journalism because we wanted to change the world. And in America and across the globe, we know that power is about money. 
And my own feeling is that if you don't understand money, you don't really understand how to write about power. There are three axioms that we, we sort of live by. The chief business of America is business. Follow the money, and it's the economy, stupid. Um, if you can name the, who, those people, um, we'll have a quiz at the end. But it's Calvin Coolidge, Woodward and Bernstein, and James Carville um, when he was Bill Clinton's campaign manager. The people in the Times couldn't be more different, but the message is essentially the same. It's really all about the money. Think about this for a minute. The top book about baseball in the past year wasn't about the art of hitting or the book drama of the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was Moneyball, which is a book about baseball by Michael Lewis, which, if you haven't read it, is pretty fabulous. He went to the London School of Economics. It's not coincidence that the budget that we're all um, tearing our hair out about in Washington right now has to do with so many things like ideology and politics and health care, but ultimately it's about how the government will spend its money, and the bottom line is the bottom line. It's not just today, and it's not in the U.S. Joe might remember um, that when we were um, all covering the breakup of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, and Gorbachev was giving up his head of the Communist Party, and um, I was working for the Wall Street Journal then, and this was around 1990. Uh, I had recently arrived in Moscow, um, pregnant with my second child and a 15-month-old running around, and one of our friends who worked for DuPont uh, stopped by and said, do you know that the Soviets have stopped paying their bills for the product that we export to them? every year. And I said, really? He said, you better ask around because a lot of people are not getting paid. Coke isn't getting paid. IBM isn't getting paid. Sure enough, it turned out to be true. And the important thing about that story, which I wrote, and um, then we followed up with much bigger stories, is that, in fact, the Communist Party was running out of money. They were pretty much bankrupt. So the entire Cold War period, you know, we had been worrying about Russia and communism, and it was really, in fact, a bankrupt system, which I think when it actually came home to roost was pretty eye-opening for a lot of people. So I do think, as Alex said, when you look around today at what kinds of news organizations are expanding and are playing a more important role, you know, it's Reuters, it's Bloomberg, it's my old friends at the Wall Street Journal, it's the FT, and it's really daunting the task that we have. I and mean, we just did a poll at Bloomberg showing that most of the country thinks the deficit is getting bigger. In fact, it's getting smaller. I mean, this entire fight we're having over the budget, most Americans don't understand what is actually at stake and what is actually happening. Um, and at a time when it seems that Obamacare can only be understood from the right or the left, somebody needs to look at the facts dispassionately and try to explain who wins and who loses. Um, this just in, you know, the computers for the exchanges are crashing because so many people are trying to sign up for Obamacare right now. I hope it's, I hope that's the reason. Um, it's very possible that they, they uh, didn't have this well organized enough, but I think it's a very positive sign that so many people are trying to um, sign up that the computers aren't working. And somebody pointed out to me that, you know, um, the break, Breaking Bad websites crashed on Sunday, too, So just because so many people were trying to get on. So that that's probably what happened. 
When Mike Bloomberg um, created Bloomberg, his vision was about the need for accurate, transparent data and information, and that's what we do. You probably consume our products uh, all day long, and even with a little advertisement here, even if you don't realize it. Um, we are one of the largest news organizations in the world. Uh, we now have 2,400 journalists and 146 bureaus in 72 countries. All of our reporters share the same goal, accurate, precise reporting, and that explains why, we, why we're doing what we're doing. So I just wanted to highlight a few stories that we've done recently that I think go to the point of transparency and transformation. Bloomberg News went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court a couple of years ago to get the Federal Reserve to release details of the bank bailout from 2008 to 2009. This was a body of work that um, I think was awarded a, a goldsmith a couple of years ago. Um, a huge amount of taxpayer money had been used to bail out the banks but nobody knew how, who got how much, and to us that was unacceptable. So when we finally forced the Fed to release thousands of pages of information, this is what we found. Quote, the Fed didn't tell anyone which banks were in trouble so deep they required a combined $1.2 trillion on December 5, 2008, their single neediest day. Bankers didn't mention that they took tens of billions of dollars in emergency loans at the same time that they were insuring investors their firms were healthy. And no one calculated until now that banks reaped an estimated $13 billion of income by taking advantage of the Fed's below market rates. We just made a very interesting documentary, too, about Hank Paulson and his role um, in the Fed bailout, which is on Netflix. Sorry, another advertisement, but it's actually pretty interesting. Um, consider the Koch brothers. This was really, I thought, a remarkable story um, done by our markets group. So as you know, they are among the richest people in America, and they are major supporters of the Tea Party and other conservative causes. And a lot has been written about their politics. But we asked at Bloomberg, how do they make their money? Their company is massive but private. We spent months investigating. We found they paid bribes to win business in Africa, India, and the Middle East, and falsified data about emissions of benzene, which is a known cause of cancer. They took oil from federal land that they didn't pay for and sold millions of dollars of petrochemical equipment to Iran, despite the U.S. embargo. In other words, we brought some level of transparency in a powerful organization to a powerful organization that otherwise operates in the shadows. Remember, this is a private company all the editorials in the world about the Koch brothers' politics would not equal that one story that showed how they really do business, which leads to the question, what would they hope to gain by supporting a candidate? What kind of country, community, state, or, or world are they trying to create? We all understand that money plays a role in politics, but the reasons why are far from transparent. That's why I'm very proud of a Mitt Romney story that we did in August uh, that was titled um, Donors Invest Millions in Romney for Billions in Return and explore, explained the many unexplored ways in which various presidential and regulatory actions could mean huge money for big donors. <coughs> we wrote, Romney is more than just a political kindred spirit. He is a sound investment. For instance, Sheldon Adelson, the casino operator who, won, who was the election's biggest spender, could see his casino profits soar if Romney's pledge to crack down on Obama turned out as planned. The reasons were complex, fascinating, and important. More than half of Adelson's gambling empire profits, which is in Macau, come from casinos in Macau, 
and Romney had demanded that the value of the Chinese currency be stronger, which would have helped Adelson's profits. Do I think Adelson supported Romney because of this? Only because of this? Probably not, but it's impossible to fully understand what drives any of the campaign's biggest donors without understanding some of the things they hope to gain. The world needs financial journalists to uncover wrongdoing before it comes a crisis. We are not always very successful at this. Nobody, nobody questioned how Bernie Madoff could have made so many consistent returns year after year, and oh my heavens, don't we all wish we could have anticipated the 2008 housing bubble crash. On um, November 4th, even Queen Elizabeth in 2008 asked economists at the London School of Economics, why did nobody notice it? Um, our challenge is to always do a better job. Um, I'm very glad that sometimes we do flag crises before they get out of control. Um, Dan Golden um, did a series uh, on the for-profit colleges that revealed re recruiting homeless people and brain-damaged uh, sources by the colleges and all getting um, supported by the federal government and, and their loans. And Dan's reporting prompted Phoenix um, University and Kaplan University, the two of the biggest schools to introduce free orientation programs to weed out the unfit students. And as a result, the enrollment at Phoenix dropped by a third and Kaplan by a half. Um, that story won um, a Polk and a Loeb and was a finalist for the Pulitzer. And if you have any questions you would like to ask about it, Dan is here. The, the for-profit colleges are continuing their, their downward spiral as they get revealed um, for the frauds that they are. Um, we've done a lot of uh, reporting on the trillion in, in student debt, um, which has been told over and over again, but much of it was first reported by Janet Lauren and John Heckinger, who reported not only the debt itself, but side issues like the fact that debt collection in, uh, agencies are making a fortune working for the government, squeezing money from young people. Um, because of our reporting and a great deal of reporting that followed ours, Obama cut the commissions to debt collection agencies and has proposed measures that will ease the student loan debt, something we are continuing to cover. Another looming crisis is that the baby boomer generation is beginning to retire and hasn't saved nearly enough money. We ran a story last week about a 77-year-old guy who is flipping burgers one of two jobs he has now, another word, one I think he's a greeter at a Walmart or something, because even though he was earning six figures in the prime of his life, he didn't save enough money. We're actually on the verge of an entire generation of older people who simply can't support themselves. It is a looming catastrophe, and we are devoting extensive resources to raising this alarm. So. Let me just go back to Bangladesh for a minute and how we figured out that on every pair of jeans, if people could spend 90 cents more, i.e. $22.90 on their blue jeans, it could make those, those factories safer. We added up all the pieces of the, um, the garments that were made, the cost of the zippers, and um, broke it down penny by penny, showing what it would cost to add safety to, to, that, to that equation. We wrote, for just pennies per t-shirt or a pair of trousers produced, garment manufacturers could build factories where workers get a decent wage, maternity leave and overtime, 
where chemicals and fumes are properly vented and where hallways and fire exits are well lit and wide enough for anyone inside to flee any dangers. Yes, for just 90 cents more, we could have made, or could make everyone's lives safer. It's easy to have an opinion about a tragedy like that, but having an actual figure like 90 cents makes the toll of those lives seem really senseless. This isn't to say, of course, and, and we have a businessman in, in our audience here who pointed out to me that I should say something good about, um, about business. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that wealthy people are evil and that the pursuit of money is a bad thing. Um, we've got people like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates giving away tons of money, and I am reminded um, by the folks at Bloomberg that Mike Bloomberg, as he has put it, said, I am a big believer in giving it all away and have always said that the best financial planning ends with bouncing the check to the undertaker. So he's giving, <laughs> he's giving away his fortune, too. Um, but for an economy like ours to work, there has to be fairness, and we have to think about how to balance the discussions um, with the facts. The growing disparity of wealth in this country is a huge topic. It's been written about many times, but it still keeps happening. So if you have any ideas on what we could be writing and saying about that problem, I think that would be fun to talk about. Or we can talk about Washington, but I just wanted to give you a flavor for why we do what we do, and I hope it's been insightful. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask a couple of questions, then we'll open it to the, uh, to the, to the room. Laurie, talk, if you will, a bit about the structure of Bloomberg as a company that has this journalistic, you know, leviathan, but also has and really is rooted on a different kind of business that, the, that was the, at the core with the machines that Mike Bloomberg has. How is that? Is there a model there that makes Bloomberg uniquely able to do business news in a different kind of way? Is it something that um, is a vulnerability because somebody could come along with a different machine that you know does what Mike's machines do? And what would happen to? I mean, I just don't understand the business model for the news operation of. Bloomberg sufficiently well, and I think it's such an important institution. How does it uh, how does it work in that sense? So the meat and potatoes business model of Bloomberg News is really almost exactly what the Wall Street Journal was founded on, which was the old-fashioned ticker. Some of you are here are old enough to remember. I the remember the ticker. Yes. The ticker went around like this, and. We used it's called to, a broad tape, We actually. used to get <laughs> press releases <laughs> over a fax machine, and we would call up the phone as quickly as we could and call the ticker and phone in what was in the press release. But we had to first substantiate that you know its origins were, were, were um, legitimate. So people paid a lot of money to have the ticker because it provided market-moving news you know, faster than any, anybody else. And news does move the markets. I mean, everything moves the markets, except the shutdown in Washington yeah. seems to have the markets up today, so go figure. But, I mean, Syria moves the markets, 9-11 moved the markets, 
you know, we, like what you would consider to be popular news moves the markets. Wal you know, the other day we reported that Walmart is actually got too much inventory and they were selling it off and it moved the Dow and the S&P and Walmart in like a half a nanosecond. So we have high paying subscribers who want the news faster and first than anybody else because they can trade off of it. And we're, we are faster than Dow Jones, which is practically out of business as a wire service now. And Reuters is our, our, our main competition, and we are both in a fierce battle to provide the news fastest, and people pay a lot of money for that. So that's the first business model. Then we um, hope that they pay for our analysis and insight, which uses a lot of Bloomberg functions, which terminal customers, you know, terminal customers are pretty geeky. If you've got... It, I, I can't even, like, pretend to understand <coughs> how the terminal works, and neither can Dan Golden. <laughs> Last time I checked. So it's a very, very geeky thing with, I don't know, 40,000 functions on it, but you can do, as a reporter, very interesting analysis using the Bloomberg um, function, but people, you know, we, we, I think our markets coverage is among the most sophisticated in the world. So people really study our markets coverage, um, along with Reuters, because they want to know what's going to be happening next, and they want to understand it. But, you know, the website is taking off. We've got, uh, I don't know, something like 30 million unique viewers per month. It's selling advertising. We were the top video site <coughs> anywhere, um, even bigger than Yahoo, uh, which also is starting to sell some. I'm not pretending like the web is going to make a ton of money here, but um, we are developing our digital consumer products. Uh, we just, as you mentioned, hired um, this really interesting guy named Justin Smith um, from the Atlantic Monthly to transform our consumer content. And, and, you know, we give that away for free, which I think is a real public service by us and Reuters because we have these very sophisticated information that the paying terminal customers get first, and then we give it away for, you know, day traders <laughs> and interested single-family investors and people like that. So, so Mike Bloomberg is a very hale and hearty person, but he is also mortal, I assume. No, you're not going to ask me what happens after Mike. <laughs> I can't? <laughs> no idea. The thing is, it's a private company, and he owns it, right? As I understand. He owns it. I, I honestly am not qualified to tell you what the what the setup is, what the succession planning is, or the or the you know whether the foundation whether it all goes to the foundation. I just I actually don't know. Do you think that Bloomberg, um, after Mike leaves the mayorship in New York, will take on a more advocacy role and he will become more sort of engaged in using this? The way the you know the way the New York Times has an editorial voice and the Wall Street Journal has an editorial voice uh, to become more of an advocate for a perspective on on politics and policy and so forth. You know he is very outspoken as mayor of New York on issues that I know are near and dear to his heart: climate change, gun control, you know, health. Um, stuff um, 
I don't I there's been no announcement of, of his plans I would expect him to go on being exactly who he is which is you know a leader and never minces words about how he really feels about things and um, I know the Bloomberg view is housed at the foundation and um, I think he takes an interest in that but I don't know what he's going to be doing well he has my rec my understanding is that while he's been mayor, he has really sort of kept an arm's length relationship with Bloomberg News. I mean, he's really sort of oh, yeah. left it to the people who run it for him. But as you say, he has very strong views. He's had a he's been an, a mayor with a political agenda and a very you know one that he feels passionately about. Clearly, uh, I don't know. Would that be? I mean, it would seem to me it would be a natural evolution for Bloomberg News to take on more of that kind of a. Because that's what all other news organizations, well, I don't know what the Reuters would be considered to have one or not. Well, you know, Matt, Matt Winkler has very strict rules, which I completely <coughs> endorse, that reporters who are reporting should never be writing opinion pieces and columns. So we, are, we have a real Chinese wall between us and the mm -hmm. Bloomberg view, as it should be. And... Um, you know, we he doesn't even allow columnists to be bureau chiefs. I mean, he do, he wants Matt doesn't want any, uh, you know, any opinion seeping into the into the news. <coughs> and I I think that's the way you got to go. So what Mike does with the View and himself, you know, is not really something I've been asking about. Some of you may not know uh, who Matt Winkler is. Matt Winkler is the person who really created Bloomberg News for Mike Bloom, Bloomberg. At least yes, that's my sense. Yes, he did. 1990, starting he, uh, he was, again, he was, the, one of the things you find at Bloomberg News, if you look carefully, is an awful lot of Wall Street Journal folks. Who, who, uh, <laughs> Matt uh, was at the Wall Street Journal. I know he was. And so was, you know, uh, Norm and many others. Um, oh, say, one more thing. Uh, you said when we were having a conversation about today's, you know, sort of situation, uh, you were talking about how the anticipation of this very sort of obviously seeming negative thing would be likely to, or is, a lot of traders apparently seem to think it's likely to make it impossible for the Fed to stop stimulating the economy, and that's why the market went up. The psychology of trying to figure out why the market does things is something... The market you... goes up and the market goes down. That's all I can say. I mean, it's Every like all of this day. convoluted thinking about, you know... What, you know. Well, let me, uh, let me open it first to students um, who are present. If you have a question for Laurie, uh, please just raise your hand. And uh, if not, we will open it to the floor. Questions? Somebody tell me what kind of articles we should be writing about Washington right now that would. Joe Klein can answer that resonate. question easily. Yes, but I would be against my enlightened self. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So when you're talking about disparity of wealth, that, that never bothered me as much until I found out how some of these people were making their money, uh, really cheating. And uh, and, and, and that's been written about a lot in the last uh, leading up to the subprime market. So, uh, I'd like to see more of that. We should prosecute these people. Uh, as far back as 92, uh, when uh, Prudential Securities had the uh, uh, 
was an oil and gas uh, security. Uh, they were selling it as uh, saying they were buying their own or their own portfolio that product. So they sold it to a lot of people, including me, and uh, and they were found guilty of lying, and their company was fined, the corporation was fined. The people went on. The top three people went on to another organization. Uh, some of them ended up at Merrill. Uh, every place they went, the companies got into some trouble. I don't see enough care about that. The, the, the penalties that these people are suffering are, are minimal. Why do you think that is? Well, you're asking me. Well, let me let me let me no, let me really, let me I, ask I a more no pointed. Idea. Why that would be? It must be hard to prosecute. I know the subprime market; uh, they weren't doing anything illegal. Uh, people didn't know enough about all of these new products that were out there, all the derivatives, and and uh, uh, didn't understand tranches. And uh, so, I, I think there, there wasn't enough confidence uh, uh, in the prosecutors that they could get uh, a guilty. Uh, Holder's doing his best, I think, right now. What was the reaction to the Koch brothers' stories in terms of the you know, Justice Department? Because what you've described in the articles is clearly against American law. Yeah, none. No response? No. I mean, you know, Koch brothers are running around. They're putting their names on all sorts of buildings. And were, the, were those crimes taking place overseas or here? Overseas. That might be part of the reason. Well, I mean, it's violating the embargo, embargo with Iran is, uh, you know, is something that you would think would be uh, get the attention of the Justice Department. Or the Tea Party. <laughs> or somebody. <laughs> yeah. I, look, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, everybody seems to have gotten a pass, as, as you say, um, the last few years. I mean, the only guy to end up in jail is that, you know, French guy, what's his name, who... Who um, you, you can't assault a woman in your bed, in your hotel room? No, 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 no not DSK. The, the fabulous, yeah, thank you, the fabulous Fab uh, Tory, um, who who um, did a bad trade um, for um, Sakjan. Sakjan, thank you. So, um, I mean, and he's just a really low-level trader, right? I mean, nobody's nobody's paid much of a price for this. I, 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 it was, I don't know, maybe because of the bailout and because everybody was so, you know, worried about the economy sliding into the abyss, um, everybody became part of the whole scheme. You know, maybe everybody had a piece of skin in it and they couldn't figure out who should really pay. Is there some way to monitor how <clears throat> much traffic these stories get? How interested are people in the Koch brothers, for example? Um, you know, I should have, I could have looked it up. But we, we, we monitor hits like crazy. I mean, the Romney stories got a lot of hits. The for-profit stories didn't get a ton of hits, but they had a huge impact in Washington. I mean, they really, people, um, who was it, who really uh, went after the colleges, yeah, the, the Department of Ed, and, and also the, the price of the sector, the market value went down 70%. Yeah, yeah though the for-profit colleges are really on their knees. We, we mm -hmm. really, Dan, Dan did a lot of damage to them. Right. He did, really. Because the now they're all going overseas well, and starting 
how does it work now in, in terms of a, of a big Bloomberg story that appears? Do you publish it first for your machine clients, the right. ones who have bought Mike's machine and have them on their desk that do 40,000 different functions? Then do you put it on a website, or do you uh, publish it yeah, uh, so in some kind of Anything a, that's market-moving, we give to the, the paying customers first, and they get about a 15-minute lead. And um, then it appears on... And then it appears on the website, either Bloomberg.com or BusinessWeek.com. So all news first goes out on the terminal, and we give the terminal customers 15 minutes or so. However, the exception to that is that red headlines flash on TV because we're trying to make a business out of TV, so which isn't going so great. But anyway, um, we give away our, our red headlines flashing news uh, on TV. So if you're monitoring Bloomberg TV, you can see this stuff pretty, pretty fast, too. But then you have to go to the terminal to get the full story. And um, stories appear in Business Week as well. And, um, you know, they can, I mean, the biggest story we've had ever on the website, this, will, this is close to home for you. So we were the first ones to interview the guy in the Boston Marathon bombing who um, had his legs blown off. He was kind of an iconic picture, remember, being wheeled out of the, carried off the scene by his friends. So it turned out he had looked the bomber, right, the, one of the bombers right in the eye, and when he came out of surgery, the first thing he did when he woke up is he wrote a note to the nurse saying, I saw him, and he provided the dis first description to mm. one of the bombers, to the police. And we had that story first. It was, it's one of those funny things in life where his friend was dating somebody at Bloomberg and called her and told her this whole story. So we got the first interview with him. It was just, it was random, okay? It wasn't because we were Bloomberg or the New York Times or anybody else. We just had lucked into it. And that story is all, is, I don't know, got up to two million hits. Just that one story, which is pretty big. Um, for us. Mentioning the bombers brings to mind, I don't know what New York paper published the wrong picture. Mm. Of New York Post did. The Post. And I realized, not with respect to that, but have you had anything like that where you've done an expose that turned out not to be true? Oh God, <laughs> that I know of. I hope not. We, uh, we've got a pretty, you know, we feel pretty good. I mean, we had our little blow-up over the customer identification thing, which really was much ado about nothing, I can say, thankfully. There was never any reporting, inside information, anything that was, was violated. Why don't you explain that to people? I think they probably... Well, not that I want to dredge it up again, but, you know... The, I'll withdraw my question. No, 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 it's okay. It, that, it it's was an just, interesting question it was in the digital minor, world. Though. It was yeah. minor by comparison, but, you know, there was a, a, an old function on the terminal whereby, because we were founded to be useful to customers, we were one of the, really the first internets ever, and everybody had a shared email address, uh, Bloomberg.net. So that function allowed reporters to see when people were logged onto their computers so that they could ask some questions like, you know, what kind of news would be serving you best? Or since nobody's ever heard of Bloomberg News, maybe you will talk to me and tell me, you know, your view about this, that, and the other thing. So 
that we reporters initially in 1990 when Bloomberg News was founded were part of the the network and the community and that little login showed you when somebody had last logged on and they were if they were on it was green like you know on your Facebook or your Google pages if something you can see if somebody's online or you can switch it off which Bloomberg customers could do but of course, people barely understand the terminal, so they don't even know how to sh shut off that kind of stuff. But um, so one, you know, fine day in, I don't know, March or April or something, a reporter was tracking, trying to track down an investment banker who she thought had left Goldman Sachs, and she said to the PR guy, you know, he hasn't been logged on to his terminal. And the PR guy was like, what do you mean he hasn't been logged on? How do you know that? You know, so anyway. Goldman Sachs had a long list of things that they were really holding a lot of grudges against us about, and they just turned that into a really big incident. Because but she was able at that at that time, but that's no longer it possible. It switched off, and honestly, there was nothing you could tell from that except that somebody had last logged on, and you know, and and and, and by the way, very famous people. <laughs> Very famous executives have Bloomberg terminals that they've never logged on to, <laughs> because probably because they don't know how to use them. But anyway, um, they're, not, they're not cheap. I can tell you that, that. was about as far as as, well, that's a, that's a as we've thing, gotten as in terms of scandals. Mm -hmm. No. Yes. Um, Lori, um, Hi. How are you? Yeah, it's really important because I think our web guys would tell you that most of our traffic comes in sideways. So it's from people tweeting, linking, that kind of thing. Social is huge, and we do a lot of tweeting. And, um, you know, when we get picked up on Yahoo or Drudge or one of the big sites, Huffington Post really drives a lot of traffic to our stories, so we like that. What about for, are you experiment, experimenting at all with crowdsourced reporting? Uh, yes, uh, maybe to a certain, I, 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 I'm not 100% sure who's doing that, and, and um, I, I know they watch that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you have a big data crunching apparatus? We do, because we, we have a whole division of Bloomberg called data. Mm. <laughs> um, and sometimes they do stuff for us, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes, you know, the customers come first. This is um, all market data. I was thinking the things that would be used for a more journalistic But purpose. we have data, yeah. We have data out the wazoo. You wouldn't believe how much data we have. Mm. I mean, we are a data company. It's not just about markets. I mean, mm -hmm. we collect data on everything. And interestingly enough, all of our stories are scraped for whatever data is in the stories, too. So we, we have more data than you can possibly imagine. Mm. Everything. Yes. Hi. Um, I'm curious about your coverage of the, or how you approach the Affordable Care Act. Like, health care is, um, some would argue, a market unlike other markets. And um, I'm just interested to hear a little bit about well, first you called it by the right name because that's one of the first rules of Bloomberg is that you have to call it the Affordable Care Act and not Obamacare because mm -hmm. Matt Winkler really has a thing about calling it Obamacare. Um, Even the president has kind of caved. I think the president <laughs> likes it myself, right? <laughs> <laughs> but Matt is purer he than he's purer than the president. So um, I think. 
frankly, I would say our initial reporting was kind of murky, like the Affordable Care Act itself. Nobody quite knew how it was going to turn out in the wash, uh, so to speak. And now it is becoming clearer and clearer, and I think the discussion is more about how expensive is this going to be and who's going to benefit and who's not going to benefit and does it make sense from a practical standpoint for people. I think it's beginning to gel that the, it's going to benefit certain kinds of people greatly. So single people who, you know, uh, young, don't have families yet and maybe don't have jobs who have to pay only $150 a month for their health care or maybe even, I heard yesterday, Ben Lasky on the New York uh, insurance supervisor said maybe even $14 a month for like this, the, you know, what are they calling the bronze plan. So that that's helpful. If you have a really horrible disease and you're very, um, you know, you make just enough money not to qualify for Medicaid and um, nobody will take you for insurance. You definitely benefit from that. If you have, you know, two hundred thousand dollars, million dollars in hospital bills, and and you know, hundred and fifty dollars a month doesn't look so bad. If you're a family of four and you're right on the line, and it's going to cost you ten thousand dollars a year to insure your family, that's probably a tough choice. I bet you a lot of people will just say it's too expensive for me. Um, but. I, so I think those kinds of issues are starting to come into focus, and I think people are starting to also write articles about interesting topics, like are there going to be enough doctors to care for everybody, you know? It's, it's evolving, and the number of hits on our stories are, going, are just going up astronomically now. People are really well, starting. Happening, it's you know? happening. So the two best-read stories all week on our website were about Obamacare. You mean the Affordable Care Act. Oh, well, that's a great question. We talk about that all the time. No, not everybody, because, I mean, we, we are, at the end of the day, our first priority is the wires. So I would say probably about a 1,000 people write for the wires and wouldn't aspire, you know, to write longer stories. And God... God help them because, I mean, without them, you know, none of us would be in business. Oh. And it, the wires are really, really mission critical. You get, and I'm telling you, it is scary to sit there and send stuff to the wire. You've got to be fast. You have to be really accurate. And um, you, you can't get it wrong. You just can't get it wrong. So people, you know, who aspire to write longer, I mean, you had a great story, which was the most read on the terminal and the um, website on Friday, it being Friday, was about Cinnabon and this former Hooters um, waitress who founded Cinnabon. It's just a great story. If you think, um, if you want to read something sexy about food, it's, uh, it's, it's really a good read. So, you know, we have people who do all sorts of things. Do you think you're going to become much more oriented toward general interest news and human-oriented stuff and things like that? I mean, I feature things like the Wall Street Journal has done. Well, I, look, we're always interested in people. I mean, the story about the 77-year-old guy flipping burgers, you know, got, is probably up to 400,000 hits on the website right now. And you could say that's a story, you know, that's more like about people than business, but it really is, if you read that story, you're going to understand how much trouble we're really all in, 
no, nobody has enough money in their 401ks to support themselves. Well, but the journal so does. So it's really about business. The journal does these, you know, feature sections that are aimed clearly at a very high demographic and the interests of that very high demographic. Right. That same demographic, I would think, would be Bloomberg's audience for the most part. Mm-hmm. So we actually have a higher demographic now because okay. Rupert's taken the paper downstream a bit. I mean, things like <laughs> things like you know how yeah, to buy how to buy I, land I in know, Palm Beach. I know you want Mike Bloomberg to bite the Wall Street Journal, but I'm not biting. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh yes. Hi, Lori. I'm a um, graduate of Bloomberg, um, and. So the, my question is actually, well, I'm going to divert for a minute because we used to play games about how to get the most clicks from the traders. You were, mentioned Cinnabon and Hooters. And the we winner, did not put Hooters in the headline. The winner was, <laughs> the winner for how to get the traders, who were very busy and only, you know, how to get them to click was uh, Harvard hooker gets big bonus. We don't, <laughs> we don't do that anymore. In fact, but that's not my fact. One of the things Goldman Sachs was complaining about was that we always put their name in the headline, even though if the story had nothing to do with them. So. Um, but my question is, um, Robert Carroll was here this weekend. I didn't get to see his presentation, oh. but, but someone said one of the things he told his Neiman audience was, get out there. Go see the people. You know, leave the office, go, I mean, he's famous for just, you know, going just to see what LBJ was looking at right. across the road. And so, um, however, my friend Michael Kinsley's rule is never go see anybody because the, um, what you need to know is in the documents and in the facts, and if you, if you meet them, you'll either like them or not like them, and that'll skew your story. <laughs> now, when I was at Bloomberg, I covered the 2008 race <clears throat> with Al Hunt in Washington, and I found the culture, partly because of this panic with the terminals and stuff, it, the culture was not only do you not get out of the office, you barely go to the bathroom. <laughs> and I kept telling people, you know, I had people on the campaign trail, but for another story, why don't you go, why don't you yes, leave the exactly. office and try to get this story? But there was this sense of kind of, you know, that someone was watching whether they were at their desk in their terminal, and that, that's not how you do things. I've since been at Reuters, and I've also found the same culture of we can do everything we need to do without leaving this desk. So how do you feel about that? Okay, so my message exactly when I came to Bloomberg about five years ago, I was kind of horrified at the number of people who felt they couldn't leave their desk. So I was put in charge of companies' news coverage, which was about 400 people. So we started a little revolution on company news, and everybody got up from the desk and got out and reported, and people who didn't like leaving their desk went and worked on the speed desk. So... Uh, which was great. So it served two really great purposes. The whole idea was to add value to the news, and the only way you can add value to the news is by talking to people. I sincerely believe that. And I think you would find Bloomberg a very different place now. I really do. We we are really doing quality journalism. I mean, Carol Heimowitz spent, I don't know, a week in Florida with this uh, burger flipper guy, T- Tony Palomi. It's, it's an amazing story. It really you know, is. I'll, the, I'll send it to you. On the okay. Kinsley thing, only only a journalist who never went out and saw people would say something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it, it was one of, I was so happy 
when Michael Kinsley was passed over as a potential editor for The New Yorker for that very reason. Okay, because but Michael has his own brilliance because it's all in his head and he is brilliant. That's fine. Okay, the, so rest of us, the rest of us aren't smart enough to do that without going out <laughs> and, right. and, and seeing people. Bob Carroll, by the way, I did see his presentation this weekend, and when he was asked about the web, he said, I don't have an email address. <laughs> that's remarkable, isn't it? Well, I think that's Bob, if you know him at all. That's, I, I mean, he's, he's very, he, he wears a jacket and tie, even though he works alone in an office every day, because it makes him feel that he's at work. Yes? Could you talk a little bit more about how you cover the banking industry, and not just because it's been so newsworthy for the past couple of years, but... There's often criticism about how opaque their balance sheets and financial reporting and disclosure <coughs> is, and you know, can they do better? And you know, all the risks embedded in those businesses can they be better understood, both by you know the street and Washington and the general public, et cetera? And well, we cover the banks aggressively, and I mean the big banks, the JPM, big banks, City, Goldman. We cover them very aggressively, so we're in this kind of difficult situation where they are our biggest customers. And we write about them nonstop, which also drives them crazy. It just does. Um, but they all like to read about each other, too. So we have that going for us. <laughs> um, and every time somebody does something wrong, you know, it shoots right up to the top of the, the, the most red list. Um, we did, you know, we spent a lot of money suing the Fed to get this information about how much they had spent on the bailout. And they fought us tooth and Fed taught us tooth and nail. The banks fought us tooth and nail. And it was a lot of numbers, but it was very revealing. I mean, as I read to you, you know, they took a lot of money, and and um, then they posted really big profits afterwards. So when you're wondering why people aren't being prosecuted for this, I think it's because everybody was all part of the problem and the, sol and the solution, um, myself. But, um, you know, we cover the bank's with beat reporters. It has an extremely high priority for us. We cover just about everything banks do. Um, How does it work at Bloomberg? I, I was at the New York Times, and I know that when you put something critical of a corporation, or anybody really for that matter, in the New York Times, it has an effect. And so it is not at all unusual for people in anticipation of a critical story to try to head it off, mm -hmm. to complain, to complain about the reporter, to complain about the the. Per perceived direction of the story. Who handles that kind of thing? At oh, very timely question. So post our little kerfluffle over the UUID things, um, Clark Hoyt is now, you probably know mm, Clark, I do. so he's now reporting directly to Norm Porlstein as kind of internal ombudsman for <coughs> customers who want to complain about coverage who feel like they're not getting an adequate hearing from the news department. And then we have a standards editor, Tim Quinson, who reports um, to Matt Winkler directly. So, and we have letters to the editor come in over the terminal. We all, whoever wrote the article that the letter is about, we respond to them immediately and we invite them to call us, write a letter to the editor, something like that. So there are a lot of different ways that people can complain about us, and they do. No, I'm sure they do. And sometimes they're right to complain about us, you know, and we, we, we pay really good attention to that. I, nothing well, gets swept under the rug. Well, Clark was, of course, the public editor of the New York Times. Exactly. And he, he found, I know, that among the problems of that job is dealing with people at the newspaper when he 
basically took a took the position yeah. that the, 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 the journalism was flawed. How does that work? Well, so Paul Steiger at the Wall Street Journal always said, you know, he had Barney Kalame as, as his internal ombudsman and then Alex Friedman, mm -hmm. um, who's now at Reuters. And uh, we set the highest internal standards for reading stories for fairness and um, accuracy. <clears throat> in, at the journal, and Paul always said, if you can't get it right, you know, the first time, you know, there's no point in having somebody be a public editor writing about, this was his view. And I'm just going to say, I, I sort of endorse that, like, let's spend our money and effort getting it right the first time. So if you have good lawyers, and we have an excellent uh, lawyer right now, um, and um, Randy, um, Randy Snyder, who was at Daily Beast and, and Newsweek. Um, and, you know, the lawyers, the standards editors, editors like Dan Golden, you know, who have the highest, highest, you know, um, standards for accuracy. And, and, I mean, ask Dan how he feels the night before a big story's running. <laughs> okay, that's my wife. I don't <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you've got to be super, super careful, and you've got to get it right the first time. So, yeah, but I, you I don't know. always get it right the first no, time. No, we don't. So then people write letters, and we publish their letters, and we, we, make correct, we correct things mm -hmm. very quickly. It's Way more quickly. We don't wait till the next day. We publish the yeah. minute something is wrong. We publish it as a correction attached to the story. You know, it's interesting that some very prominent news organizations simply don't correct and have, have never, I mean, Time I know for years considered a letter to the editor to be a correction, mm -hmm. even though they didn't identify it that way. Oh, God, see, and we can't. The, 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 I'll our, correct within my column. Our, mm -hmm. our stories mm -hmm. cost people money, and if we've made a mistake, we attach the correction <clears throat> to the story, and burying a correction or not telling somebody about it is a fireable offense. It, it, there's no, there's zero tolerance for. But, but Lori, you know, I was thinking about what you said at the very beginning about Obamacare today and the computers crashing, and I've been following this very closely because um, I've been interested in exchanges mm -hmm. for almost for 25 years now, um, and um, from my reading of it, there's no way of knowing at this point how many computers have crashed, how serious <coughs> no, the crashes are, and so on. But we live in an era when if Bloomberg says computers are crashing, it becomes the lead on Drudge. Mm. And it becomes the, you know, Obamacare fails becomes the headline, you know, for Fox I'm News sure somebody night. will twist it that way. I'm, um, I'm sure and, that and, will be and, the you know, Wall Street Journal's <clears throat> version of it, to be honest. My, you know, we have... As a weekly journalist, we have the luxury, I have the luxury, time has the luxury of being able to step back and not have to worry about this, but this must drive you crazy, right? Well, I mean, news is news. You just have to get to the bottom of it as quickly as you can, and I don't think news waits for weeklies anymore. Don't you blog and stuff? Don't you write, try to write more than once a week? Yeah, and I find that I, I more often make mistakes when I'm blogging than when I'm writing my weekly column for that reason. But I mean, in something as important as this, yeah. and it's as such a fraught moment, it would, if I were in your position, it would drive me crazy trying to get the balance on how to report. Well, the like first I day said, the computers crashed, you know, after Breaking Bad Sunday night, too. 
I mean, mm-hmm. you never know why computers are having a hiccup. If and if they are, you gotta you gotta. But this is a this is a core journalism. But I do I do I do get your point. It, one computer having a problem someplace doesn't. I mean, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, because if people want the care, they'll wait till the computer's fixed and sign well, up. Well, it's like it's like the medical reporting that says the can't the likelihood of someone contracting this disease is twice what his what it was before except it went from 0.001 to 0.002 or something mm-hmm. I mean you know it's it's a it's a, a specious kind of way to frame um, if you don't put it in context mm-hmm. and it's something that you know I don't this is not Bloomberg this is everybody that I think is uh, makes a lot of, of misleading especially, uh, misleading headlines because they are uh, easy to 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 get wrong in the kind of context of you know I mean the headline instead of being doubled the likelihood is like your chances of getting cancer from this source are almost nil but that's not a, that's not a selling well, headline. Well, my view is as long as nobody's getting killed, you know, we can wait and see what what you know what really happened. I mean, you know, when the bomb went off during the marathon. I mean, it took a little while for people to realize, oh, my God. Yeah. Do your folks tweet? wrong again and again and it was. again. Do your folks tweet? Was. Do they, are I they know. expected to tweet pretty much instantaneously or before they we have, we, are, we only tweet when something is already posted online. You mm. have to wait until it get, gets past the terminal because you don't want to compete with the terminal with Twitter. And how do you strike the balance in your sort of direction to your reporters between getting it right and getting it fast and when to stop reporting and file and when to, you know, to go try to find something out about what happened before you file? Ah, well, good question. That's a really good question. So when something comes in over the transom in a press release, okay, there's a desk that, that deals with the first headlines, as I said, very, very fast, are really great wire reporters. And then the beat reporters, who I'm supervising, I hope have a few minutes to figure out what does this mean and um, get the story behind the story. So, you know, things come out in phases as fast as we can get them. And the world has a huge appetite now for instantaneous news. And we were extremely careful, partly because we were lucky. We didn't have Boston police sources during the marathon because we don't cover Boston as a a city. And I think they were probably the source of a lot of misinformation that came out because they were not informed themselves because the Globe had a lot of stuff wrong, CNN had a lot of stuff wrong, and... We were just kind of lucky, be, you know, in one it's sense, no because John King was a Boston guy. Yeah. Well, and, it, and the feds moved in, and so the Boston local police got mad, and they were, you know. So we stuff. have very strict sourcing rules about when we're going with information that somebody's given us off the record. It's got to come from two. It's the old Woodward and Bernstein. It's got to come from two people, unless you've got the source directly involved in the situation telling you. So, um, you know, as I said, the markets are very unforgiving. We we can't afford to get things wrong. We really can't. If people lose money because of what you reported, they get very, very mad. So, so we're almost we out of time. I'm, I'm going to ask you, how long is this standoff going to last in Congress with the Affordable know. Care Act? What do you think, Joe? I don't know. 
you know. Lee, what do it, you think? <laughs> I'm actually going to go out on a limb and say it will be over quickly because I, I do think that someone will, you know, before it, if it's not crashing the markets, it may go on a little longer. But you know, I, well, I, I, I learned today yeah, something that I didn't point. know before, that there have been repeated shutdowns during Reagan and Carter administration. Yeah, well, Clinton, too. 95 was the last one. Yeah. Well, in this case, I mean, the amazing thing to me about this is that you have 435 members of Congress, of whom 202 are Democrats, um, which means that you, had to get, you have to get 16 Republican votes. And there are 12 districts where Republicans won, but Obama also won. And so you figure you can get those pretty easily. There are occasional outliers, like my favorite, one of my favorite congressmen, Scott Rigel from Virginia Beach, who was the lone vote against the House measure. Um, and it would seem to me, uh, against the, in, in the Republican caucus, against the Republican me measure, that leaves three more people to get. No, no, I don't think, I think, and, and, but Bonner won't let him vote. I mean, I think that's the point. The, the, he'll lose his job if he puts it to a vote. But they don't, they can go, you know, a majority still rules, you know. Um, well, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, this law was passed three years ago. We've been through a, a major presidential election. I mean, you know, okay, you don't agree with it, but it doesn't mean you have the right to shut down the government. I'm but sorry to say we're out of time. Uh, <laughs> you know, keep that thought. Uh, but, uh, Laurie, thank you for coming. We appreciate it.